Wednesday morning, and today we have a special episode, and we're going to have a few of these in the next coming weeks. Dr. John Patrick was at the CMDA conference. CMDA stands for Christian Medical and Dental Association, where I'm sure some of you guys know John from, and we're going to be playing one of those talks today. And in this talk, the topic is going to be Millennials and the Cancel Culture, and this is going to be part one. Father, we know that only as your spirit works in our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, can anything of real significance happen. We need your spirit, O oh Lord, and we know that when we come to you, you answer that prayer. And we pray that you will ignite a fire in us, which will spread because our world is in desperate need. We pray especially for those who face war at the moment in the world and help us to think what our role is in making for a better world. In Christ's name, amen. In uh, a book that you should buy over there if you haven't got your own copy, Carl Truman. How many of you have got the Carl Truman book? Yeah, it's a good introduction. Um, I don't entirely agree with one quotation that I have in front of me at the moment, but it, it, it's helpful. When we think of ourselves, we are all expressive individualists now, and there is no way we can escape from that fact. I think that sentence would not be understood by a lot of people. Uh, so I want to begin by saying a little bit about that, especially to the evangelical community, which is who we are. Um, the distinction that I think we fail to make is most easily demonstrated to you by misquoting the scriptures. So I'm going to misquote the great apostle, and your job is to detect the error, okay? And I'm going to paraphrase to make it a little harder. So he says, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who have been saved, it is the power of God. What's the error? Uh, uh, thank you. One, I, would, I should have meant you to raise your hand because... Uh, I don't, the rest didn't raise their hand, right? And then, did you hear what she said? It is. It's our being saved. Is your faith present continuous? Your salvation faith present continuous? Paul isn't really interested. He assumes conversion. But he can't see much evidence of present continuous faith. He wasn't hopeful about the future of the church, you know. If you read him at all seriously, you can see he's only hopeful because of God, but it looks pretty disastrous from his point of view. What a different world they lived in. Peter, writing to the people who had been harassed by Nero, he's writing to people who've got martyrs in their family. Some of them had had their mother, their father, their sister, or their brother dipped in tar and nailed to a stick and then lit for a Nero garden party, a human candle. And Paul writes, Peter writes to them and said, I know, he's never met them, that currently you have various trials. He, he, he dismisses that, just as various trials. But you have a joy beyond words. How many of the people that you actually know are Christians, would you write a letter saying, I know you have a joy beyond words? It's not our characteristic, is it? It should be. And that's part of the reason for this weekend. 
The reason woke could come along is because we were not awake. They could dismiss us of no consequence whatsoever. Now, nothing moves me like grace. Uh, I'm not an emotional person except when grace comes into the story. The way God moves is just amazing. And of course, that's our tradition, isn't it? That's where we tend to go straight away. That's why we're obsessed with conversion level one. I am saved. The Billy, the crusade, tick the boxes, sign, you're a Christian. No, you may be a Christian by the grace of God. And I can't knock Billy Graham. My wife was converted at a Billy Graham crusade. Uh, on Not live, she was listening to it in her church. Only sound, no, no video in the 1950s. But the day before she listened to Billy Graham, she was disrupting the scripture class at school. She woke up the next day and she wanted to read her Bible. That was a different world. That's grace. Deeply moving. And uh, fortunately, I have ongoing experiences of that all the while, of, of seeing that God still works in that way. One of my good friends, now dead, um, we became friends because uh, I was... We were living in London at the time, and I was, what, a year into my PhD, and I hadn't got a single result. What I wanted to do wasn't working. But I, was, I was sure it would. In the end, it did. But uh, then I got meningitis. Before I started my PhD, I did a couple of years uh, infectious diseases and never got sick. Uh, my PhD wasn't working, and I got a, a serious viral meningitis and uh, it took me six months to recover so I was off work um, it was summer and next door uh, we're a little block of six apartments with a, a garden around it and uh, a young man moved in about my age uh, very self-sufficient that was apparent in about 10 seconds when he arrived and people there said do you need any help he said no I can do it from the north, very brusque, like myself. And, uh, but we did get to know one another. And it turned out he also was from a blue-collar background, as I was. But my dad and mum did everything they could to encourage my education. His dad had taken him out of school at 15 and said, get out and earn some brass lad. He wanted money coming into the family. And he was in Derby, so he went to Rolls-Royce. And they signed him up as an apprentice electrician. When he told his schoolmaster that he was going to leave school, uh, the, math the mathematics master was very upset. He said, David, you're very smart. Go to night school. So he was bored being an electrician. He did go to night school. Fortunately, he was with Rolls, a good company, and they realized this wasn't an electrician. And they moved him up uh, into uh, the research area of Rolls, and particularly uh, nuclear engines. Uh, which they've been working on steadily since the 50s, just waiting for people to come to their senses. We'll all be running on nuclear energy quite soon. Green will never knock it, you know. It's, only people who can't calculate would think that he could. But anyway, um, he, uh, he was doing very well. Uh, 
he got a, an external degree from mathematics in mathematics from the University of London in three years without ever going to a lecture. Uh, astonishingly bright guy. And very shortly, he was running the heat flux analysis section of the Rolls nuclear engine system, how you measure heat fluxes and all the rest of it. Um, and Americans would come and look at Rolls stuff and they'd get go around his section and they would invariably say, Dr. Dawson, this is very impressive. And he'd say, Mr. Dawson. He was an inverted snob, you know. He liked, he said, uh, and Rawls, of course, was embarrassed. Uh, they, they said, we'll pay for you to get a PhD. He said, what do, um, quoting directly, he said, what the hell do I need a PhD for? I have to teach those guys what to do. Uh, and he refused. Um, they weren't going to get rid of him, he knew that. In the end, they, they said, well, there's a one-year program, master's program at the Greenwich Naval College in nuclear engineering. Would you do that? So at least you have one extra degree. And he said, he thought about it, and he got two kids. He said, well, hmm, they're the right age to enjoy the museums in London. He said, okay, I'll do that. And he moved in next door to us. Now, everything he touched turned to gold. He never bought a new car. He just went to the scrapyard and found two or three beat-up models of the one he wanted, took them to pieces and built another one. Uh, built his own house at the same time, all the while running the heat flux program. Just astonishing man. But there was me sitting in the garden when he came home from the Greenwich Naval College every afternoon, usually about half past four. He couldn't stand it any longer than that. And... Uh, we started talking and then we started playing chess and getting to know one another. And after a week or two, he came home one day and we started to play chess and I got the kind of headaches you get when you're recovering from meningitis. And I said, sorry, David, I can't finish this game. I have to go in and lie down. He knew what was going on. He said, don't bother. He said, I'll pull the things up and bring them in. The next day when he came back, he said, uh, have you got any more books like that one you were reading yesterday? I said, oh, that's where he went. Now, I had been reading a commentary on the book of Habakkuk <laughs> by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he had taken it home. And of course, Habakkuk is an amazing book. It was the only book my wife could read during the two years that she ran refugee camps. Because in Habakkuk, God tells Habakkuk, I'm going to wreck this country in a way that it's never, ever seen before. And Habakkuk said, you're God, you can't do that. And God says, just watch me. And yet it's got the mo one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry in the Old Testament as the finale of the book. But Habakkuk says, why, O Lord, do you make me look upon injustice? And God says, I'm not going to tell you that at the moment, but they deserve it. And... Everything David touched was turning to golden. He had a hole in his heart, and he knew it. So I gave him mere Christianity, which he read in two days, and said, can I come to church with you on Sunday? I think I need to come. And he'd been saved. That's conversion, isn't it? So incredibly moving. He went back to Derby, and he said, I'd got new eyes. I realized I didn't know the names of the people who were under me, and I knew nothing about their lives. I lived in a village because I liked living in the country, and the kids, of course, got into some minor vandalism because they were so frustrated, and I realized there was nothing for them. 
joined the church, started a youth group, started taking an interest in his people. He ended up as personnel director for the whole of Rolls-Royce. Meanwhile, spending a lot of time, he, then he took early retirement so that he could find blue-collar guys with smart ideas who were doing clever things at the bottom of their garden and commercializing them. But that kind of passion has died. COVID has wiped out the teenage passions. When you're a teenager, you knew that your parents had got it wrong and you were going to fix the world and the world is my oyster. That was certainly me. I can't even get under the skin of the 17 and 18-year-olds and first-year university now. They're just flat. That's what COVID has done. Because we in medicine were not sufficiently aware that utilitarian epidemiology was not appropriate to people approaching the most, one of the most important events in their life, their death. And so we destroyed the moment when most people come to faith. The last six weeks of life are vital for so many people. So what we do is stuck them behind a glass window and they couldn't even touch their loved ones. We should have said no. We should have said no. And my wife and I, when we saw what was happening, we made our decision very quickly. We're not going to hospital. We would have oxygen in the home if we got it, and if that wasn't enough, thank you. Thanks be to God would be our response. But we were not going to allow people not to allow us to die properly with our family there. And we, as people who were supposed to really understand, didn't know how to mount the argument. And we got sucked in. Uh, we shouldn't have been. So the reason is that we have a, if you like, a limited, reduced version of what salvation is. You ask, are you saved? And you tell a conversion story. That's not, that's, that's like going to the hockey game and leaving after the national anthem. It's ridiculous. And so we have to change. So first of all, I want to say something, a little digression in a way, about the distinction between faith uh, as salvation in the past and salvation in the present continuous. That's the difference between conversion and culture. The one thing you cannot find in the New Testament is anything about your responsibility for your feelings. Nothing. It's not there. What you can find is the responsibility for what you do with your feelings, but that's an act of thought. Romans 12.2 does not say, if you've understood my argument, then you must be renewed in your feelings, does it? But in an Anglican church, I can say that from the pulpit, and they won't even notice, because they go to church to feel better and be nice to one another. If your pastor is doing your job, you should leave church miserable until you are obedient. Repentance has got to return. So have creedal statements got to return. The, we have a liturgy in the evangelical church. The trouble is it's praise choruses that have a theological half-life of about 10 minutes. We need to get back to some solidity. And I've watched this over the years. One of the most interesting things that, that's happened in the what is it, 30 years I've been doing this sort of thing, um, is the start of reading groups. 
I, I gave many years ago a talk. Somebody said, could you do an after-dinner talk and uh, do something that you feel like doing, a bit quirky, that'll be fine. So I gave a talk on why doctors hate church. Uh, it was flippant to a degree, but it also had a serious content. And to my astonishment, a lot of people liked it and talked to me about it. And one guy said to me, after talking to you and listening to you, he said, and realizing what you were saying was actually true, I started sitting in the narthex to the church and watching people arrive. And dad would drive up the family van, dump mom who was teaching Sunday school and the kids. And he, he drove them right up to the door. Quite a lot of dads did this. And then he said, I'll park the car and see you in church. But he parked at Starbucks, not at the church. He arrived just before the kids came back from Sunday school. Uh, but then he said, I'm not alone. And he started a reading group that happened during the silly bit of the service. And uh, it took off. That's how the message came about. Eugene Peterson was talking to his wife. He said, I've got to get to these guys. I do a Sunday school. Eugene Peterson couldn't get to them. He said, I know they're not listening. By the time they're in every coffee cup has been doodled on, I'm going to, translate, I'm going to get them to translate the New Testament. She said, you're, you're ridiculous. No, he said, I'm not grammar and all that. I want to make them see what the problem is with the key words in the Bible and paraphrase it. That's what the message was. And of course, it's done an immense amount of good, isn't it? It is a paraphrase, not as good as J.B. Phillips, but much more appropriate to the time. I got an early copy and I read it to medical students who were Christian. And we went for about three hours. They said, how does he translate this? How does he translate? I said, he's won. He's, he's made it. He's got them interested again. I hate his, his translation of, uh, of the Beatitudes, but that's just my hang-up. But that, that's present continuous beginning to happen. And when something serious starts to happen, we actually have a deep need to be more serious than we are. Uh, God made us that way. He made us with hungry minds and we've not been feeding them and that's what has to happen. Probably the most important book uh, written in the last 50 years is not one that most of you have read, although early in my interactions with CMDA, I got into trouble with it because, um, as I told you, I, I was an invisible Christian in the university. Then the Faculty of Education got under my skin with a stupid missive that they sent round about moral neutrality, which doesn't exist. And I wrote an angry paper in an afternoon, uh, sent it to a friend and he published it and he went around the world, uh, much to my astonishment. Um, and then I wrote, an, uh, it was called um, uh, The Myth of Moral Neutrality, which is still on my website because uh, people keep going back to it. And somehow David Stevens got a hold of it. I've never discovered how, but he called me in my office. This was shortly after he took over as CEO. And he said, I've just listened to a tape of yours several times. I don't normally do that, but I've taken over a fellowship organization, which is what we're good at. I mean, you enjoy meeting one another at times like this and catching up on all sorts of things. And there's nothing wrong with that, except that it's insufficient. And he said, but he's a smart man. 
who didn't get the education he should have done. Typical doctor, you know, and missionary. That's a lethal combination in many ways uh, because they don't bother with anything that doesn't go directly to that end point. So they become missionaries and they become doctors. They, they found a mission hospital and five years after it's handed over to the indigenous people there, it doesn't work anymore. You need to think about that. And, but David's a smart guy and he said, I, I had no idea what, to, what my job was here beyond maintaining what's going on, but I could see that medicine is going to be in trouble. He's smart. This is, what, 30 years ago. And he said, yours is the first thing I've read that helps me to begin to see what I've got to do. But it's a rotten amateur recording. Will you come and record it properly? And I said, I don't have any budget for that. He said, no, 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 we will pay. I said, I don't want to take money from you. And is it really worth it? He said, yes. And persuaded me to come to the annual CMDA meeting, which that year was in the bankrupt uh, what well, I don't know, ministry, Tammy and Jim Baker, you know, the lady with the industrial weight eyelashes, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> astonishing place to have your life transformed in one way. And uh, I gave um, about four talks, I think, and uh, nobody was there for the first, and a lot were there for the second, and it was full thereafter. Um, I realized, what's going on? I had no idea because I hadn't done this before. And then the last thing David asked me to do, he said, can we have a conversation together and may I record it? Because I, I want to take it back to the office. I said, sure, no problem. And so the transformation point in, in my relationship to the USA took, took place in what had been Tammy Baker's bedroom. Um, I had to listen to it later when I realized that he, he hadn't used it privately. He sent it to you guys, uh, slightly modified. Uh, and I had to listen to see whether my amusement was showing. Fortunately, it didn't, because the most, <laughs> for me anyway, amusing thing about her bedroom was the mirrors on the ceiling. Uh, <laughs> uh, what can you say? Uh, but it didn't, it didn't show. Um, and the last thing David asked me was, how did you come to think like this? Well, I said, I got educated. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't appreciate what happened to me. When I went to high school, I had no idea what was happening to me because it was a scholarship. I'm a f an affirmative action kid. If I'd been born a year or two earlier, I wouldn't have gone. I wouldn't be here because you couldn't get out of the working class. But all sorts of wonderful actions of grace were involved, and I got translated to one of the six best schools in England, the school that Tolkien went to a generation before me. Uh, and Tolkien missed the final year at school. Everybody knew where he was, the master. They didn't do anything because he was smart. He was fine. He was in the coffee shop down the street teaching himself Icelandic because he wanted to read all the Norse legends in their original languages. And he only got an exhibition to Cox Oxford instead of an open scholarship for his misdemeanors. Didn't matter. Uh, second professor of philology in Oxford. And it's, it's a picture of what has happened and it is so bad. When Oxford advertised for its first professor of philology, 
The guy who got it was a miner's son from Yorkshire who'd never been to university, had no degrees. He went down the pits when he was 15 and didn't like it. And then he realized one guy was making the same money as you make down the pit teaching people to read. And he could do that better than he could. So he started teaching people to read in the village and soon had enough money to travel a bit. And he went all around Europe and he went to every uh, guy who was thinking about language seriously. And he'd listen to their lectures, just walk in and listen, didn't want a degree or anything. When he came back to England after several years and saw Oxford was advertising, he applied. And as I said, they were a good university. They didn't have hang-ups about saying, you haven't checked all the bureaucratic boxes. They said, you've been doing interesting things. You shouldn't allow bureaucrats to determine whether you can take a job or not. They have no idea what the job is about. And he got the job, of course. Uh, amazing. Famously, he used to, I can forget which way around it was in Oxford, but there were two professors like that. I don't remember what the one was doing, but one worked all night and the other worked all day, so they had an argument. They'd knock on the door and one would say good morning, the other would say good night. You know. uh, and that's the tradition Tolkien moved into and was given the freedom to do what he did. Amazing. Now we, we're so tunnel-visioned, we've got to get rid of that. So the book that, came, that led to that digression, of course, is one of the books that I mentioned to David. He said, what books have helped you in this? And I just closed my eyes and thought about pick six out of the 20 or so books that are always by my bed. Uh, they vary, except some Augustine's Confessions is always there, so that was one of them. But one of them was After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre, uh, which is an incredibly important book but not easy to read. And David, being the entrepreneur he is, said, the guys will want these books. Get a go to the publishers, see how cheaply you can get them. I don't know what the guy at the University of Notre Dame Press felt like when they ordered a large number of After Virtue, um, but people bought it. He called it, I think, the Thinking Doctor's Library. How a library could only contain six books and call itself a library, I don't know, but there you go. Um, he also totally misunderstood because uh, he, uh, he used the word intellectual when he, I had used the word intelligent because I had never said doctor, highly intellectual doctors because we're not. Highly intelligent, yes, uh, with a very quick variety of intelligence because that's what makes medicine worthwhile. Do you ever think what your brain does when you're talking to a patient with a disease? You don't know where it is and they walk in and you just listen to them and ask questions. And all the while, of course, you're making a model. No, making a model. No. And you don't, it doesn't even come to consciousness. Uh, and then if you haven't solved it, you'll go round and you do your rounds and then you'll come back to that patient and you'll know what the answer is. And that's why if somebody gives you a boringly pedantic lecture, you go to sleep and start doodling, right? Whereas I know what you do with me now because I've learned over the years. There's some surgeons who used to pay my tapes in the OR. They, they could do what they liked, you know. Got plenty of time when surgery is boring. That's what, about 90, 95 plus percent of the time, you know. 95% boredom and 2% sheer panic, right? That's surgery. Um, so you need something else going on. And I began to realize what 
I need to do. But I put McIntyre on the list and I said to David, give me the list of people who bought it. Uh, I, need, I need to write to them. And I never got around to it, of course. Um, and tell them which order to read those books. And after Virtue is the last. But I've been teased ever since about that. But there are also people I call my friends. They tease me and say something like, you wrecked a year of my life. Because <laughs> that's how long it took me to read that book. And I'm obsessive compulsive. And then they'll say, but it made a huge impact. All I'm going to do now is point out to you the beginning and the end. And you must realize this is your problem. McIntyre starts with a parable. He says, I want you to imagine a know-nothing government taking charge. Well, you've got one and so have we. No history, no wisdom. And they decide that all the problems in the world are green problems. He doesn't say it in that term, but that's what he's saying. All the problems in the world, they decide, come from science. So the way to make the world green and better is lynch the scientists, blow out the laboratories, and burn the libraries. Now we got rid of all the rubbish and we can start again and it will be wonderful. Of course, it's a disaster. That, so they shortly find they can't do without science anymore and they poke around in the ruins and they produce an education that's something like first-year medicine. Put this in short-term memory, pass the test, get the tick and move on. And of course, it doesn't work. That, don't, that will not make science. It won't come back. And then he says, what I'm doing in this book is not in relation to science, but in relation to morali morality. We have no moral consensus because we have allowed the story that gave it to us to be ripped out of education. When I went to school, when Sally went to school, we had a chapter of the Bible read every day in school. In my elementary school, the headmistress was amazing, Every class had to recite a poem. Not a poem, a psalm. Of course, the, the infant class could have a, a reduced one, but I still remember Miss Crockett getting us to get the appropriate passion into the psalm, who shall enter upon the hill of the Lord. Um, that was school. And of course, those things are permanently in place. The first seven years are so critical. And the British kept the Bible when you on this continent threw it out, not for religious reasons, but for cultural reasons. You cannot read Shakespeare with understanding if you don't know the Bible, because you will miss the metaphors. You won't we talk to one another in pictures, metaphors, that we have no other way of doing it. Jesus, who knew exactly how to educate people, told stories. Because you get the story first, and you draw the conclusions later. And many times, you don't even bring the drawing of the conclusion into consciousness, but it's there. That's what culture is. Culture and community, as Alan Bloom so wonderfully put it in one sentence, he's describing his uneducated uh, grandparents who had produced in three generations all MDs and PhDs. Typical Jewish success story. But in the closing of the American mind, at the end of the first chapter, he allows himself, radical homosexual that he is, but nevertheless a, a real intellectual, uh, to reminisce. And he says, my parents were humble folk. They never went inside an institution of higher learning. 
but everything done in their home was spiritually rich. Your, children, your grandchildren are going to say this about you. Because in their home, they found reasons for the performance of their duties and the bearing of their sorrows by reference to the book, the Old Testament. And they could go to the synagogue where they heard great scholars. You go to Chicago, the old Jewish synagogues are amazing buildings. Must have been a wonderful time. And they spoke not from an alien perspective, which as academics, that's what we, we tend to show off. But that's not, that's not what Jesus would do. The only thing, the only thing I, my only prayer is, how do I get under the skin? What do you want me to say? That's why I work from skeletal notes. And it, it, Alan gets, and Sally um, are on a crusade, you know, to get me more organized. And I'm grateful for that. It does help. Um, but so often, something comes in. I know now. Follow it for a minute. You'll come back onto the main track. And then what happens? Somebody comes up to me at the end of the, the session and says, I thought you were talking to me, and it was that rabbit trail. It was exactly what they needed at that point. It wasn't from me. I hadn't prepared it. I hadn't thought about it. It came into my mind and I obeyed it. It's astonishing. That's our world. Let it, let it happen. So that's, that, that's what was going on. And then Bloom says this. This is the best definition of community I know. We're always talking about community without even defining it in the first place. I should make you stop and write down your definition of community, but in half an hour's time, you still would be tr troubled by it. But this one is brilliant. He says, they taught from, not from an alien perspective, while simply going deeper and providing guidance. That is what a community is, something that invites high and low into a common story of meaning. Got it? Invites high and low into a common story of meaning. And you see that in church par excellence when it works quite well. I used to sit in front of a Down syndrome child in church for a while who loved Jesus and loved church. She couldn't sing in tune at all. That didn't matter at all because it was a joyful song. She was where she wanted to be. Uh, they're very special people, the handicapped children. Uh, they teach us wisdom. They say things that other people can't. Diane Comp, who I count as a friend, was brought to faith, ultimately back to faith. She grew up like me in a Christian home, was brought, brought, finally brought back to faith by a little guy with Down syndrome, who called her Auntie Diane. All, all, all the small children didn't call her Professor or anything like that. She was Auntie. And he got leukemia in a Christian family. Uh, you can't explain leukemia to a Down syndrome kid, but they didn't need to. It was a Christian family. Jesus loved him, so he loved Jesus. You don't need any more than that. Uh, and they have insight. And one night, uh, his mum was tucking him in, and he said, Mum, Auntie Diane is worried that I'm going to be with Jesus. I want you to tell her to stop worrying and tell her I want her to come too. And that came in under the radar and hit the target. Diane wept and she was back in the kingdom. That's grace. And that story, if it doesn't move you, there's something wrong with your heart, isn't there? Those are good tears. Grace makes me cry. Nothing else does pretty well, but grace does.
and that's good. That's why Jordan Peterson cries on, because truth, grace, is getting to him. Most people have become so inured to that that it never reaches that level of meaning. McIntyre knew about that. Now, he started as a Marxist. He's now a Thomist, but that book was a turning point uh, because he, he'd nailed the problem. And what he does in, in the rest of the book is an incredibly, uh, well, it's a unique telling of the cultural history of the Western world, not chronological. Um, and he doesn't like commas, so he's hard to read, uh, although it's, it's good prose. So only when you've got, when you retire, it's a good book to pick up uh, or to read it with other people and meet for one cup of coffee and read a paragraph and say, well, think about it for a week and come back next week. That, that would be one way to do it. But at the end of the book, he has a wonderful peroration. He says this, he says, I'm paraphrasing. If you have followed my argument, you will understand that I am saying that we've already entered upon a second dark ages. But we should not be without hope. Because the last time this happened, good men and women withdrew from the task of shoring up the Roman Imperium into the task of forming communities within which they could keep the civilities and the virtues alive and they succeeded. The only difference is last time the barbarians were waiting at the gate and this time they have been ruling us for quite some time. This is 1970, late 70s. We are waiting for a doubtless new St. Benedict. What Benedict did was form a community that was a real community and it was the monasteries that kept the faith alive for us. Without them we wouldn't be here. He got pushed out all to the western edge of uh, Ireland at the worst, but he came all the way back. And Benedict, with his eight hours of sleep, eight hours of worship and eight hours of work, uh, provided a model for the preservation of learning. Uh, what it will look like this time, I don't know. I'm hopeful that something like Augustine College cloned will be it. It could be. Um, that's where we're at. Virtue is not something that comes naturally to Christians. Or, well, that's, uh, let me rephrase that. It's not something that we can nail down in the way that we can conversion. Because what happens is that as your mind is renewed, you see things differently, don't you? I hope you can all at least point to some examples of that. I used to do this, and then I realized that's got to change. And that's the mind of Christ being formed in you. Let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Um, you need to check, keep a check on that. And of course, the essential part of it is going to be the practice of repentance every day. I mean, if you've got a tongue like mine, repentance is a required necessity to stay alive. Uh, um, I've ruined a few people's lives uh, without any intention to do that. Just, I can't resist saying, well, that's an utterly stupid thing to say, isn't it? Uh, I've got over that to some degree, I think. Uh, my children are not so sure, but they still love me. That's good. So we have got to 
think about how we're going to do this. Virtue grows slowly, centuries. When I finished the malnutrition work and was asked to go to Central Africa by missionaries to look at their problem, I didn't want to go because I had published and it was making no difference. I was watching the data for health statistics from Africa. No evidence of any change. I have yet to go to a mission hospital doing it entirely right in over 30 years. I mean, in 1979, we'd nailed the problem. The last 100 babies that I was involved with in Jamaica, all of whom were 10-pound two-year-olds or worse, we saved every single one. We didn't have a death. When that unit started some 25 years earlier, the death rate was 50% or more. And to this day, when American pediatricians arrive in a famine, the death rate goes up because the proper treatment is so counterintuitive. And so it wasn't working, and I didn't want to go, but we went. And I trained my children to do it. So all my children as teenagers worked, despite Canadian uh, laws about child labor. Uh, teenage, you start work. Uh, the, the deal is, you work for me in the summer, I pay for your first degree. They loved it. All my children have had children die in their arms when they were teenagers. Didn't do them any harm. They loved the children. And they were loved by the communities. I'm known in that area as my children's father. Isn't that wonderful? They don't know me, they know that. That's not true, they do know me as well. They also call me old man. But, but they call me wise old man. Um, that's beautiful. And that's what we're meant to be. As you use the means of grace, you will change the way you think about everything if you use them carefully. And I think you need several ways of reading Scripture, and not just a Bible passage, done my duty for the day and move on. That is missing the whole point. There should be several levels of reading going on. I mean, yes, it's wonderful to read through the Bible every year and, or whatever time period you take to do it so that you don't miss chunks out because they're all there for some reason, even the hoobigats, but you need to be very clever to understand that. I don't, uh, but some Jews do. But you also need to ask God to bring particular passages of Scripture into your mind so that you take them more seriously than others. I think you need to read a psalm every day, at least one. Uh, our forefathers would read three, and then it came down to two, and most of you don't do one. The reason for that is very simple. When you hit the rough road, you're not going to find the answer at that point if it's not already there. The psalms are the place where the rubber hits the road. Everything is there. Every awful experience, every good experience, they're all there. There's even a verse for residency. Do you know it? I have become like a dried up old wineskin in the smoke. When are you going to punish those attendings who are punishing me? <laughs> I've added one word, but uh, I haven't changed the meaning, and that's in Psalm 119 of all places. Uh, residency in one verse. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you need to know the scriptures, the Psalms like that. I have a, a friend who could probably recite the whole thing, the whole lot and not just memorization, because he, he loves the Psalms. Uh, there are a good many I can paraphrase, which is what I do most of the time. So the Psalms, yeah, I, I try to read a Psalm every day. I, first thing I do in the morning is 
switch on my computer and the first thing that comes up is a song. Uh, what that does for you is give you a jumping off point during the day. When you hit a rough patch, you just take something from that psalm, repeat that, and it will immediately start putting things in a different perspective. That's the way they work. Um, and of course, you need to read the Gospels continuously. Uh, all, all scripture is not of the same intensity, and so you, you need to read them in that kind of way. Uh, you can always tell uh, an academic because his books fall open in certain places and you it's like a bible isn't it i don't know if you've ever noticed i get a new bible when half of ephesians has sort of rotted away uh i can i can manage as the first half of the column has gone i know the le next bit but it gets a bit too embarrassing when all the pages fall out that's how a bible should be uh and of course it just happens that uh Matthew's Gospel and Ephesians and John, they go first, you know, in the Psalms. But as you get to know the Psalms, you don't actually even have to pick them up sometimes. And that is culture forming. All cultures have a great book. There are only six stories in the world that I'm aware of that will pr produce great cultures. The biggest one of all, as Chesterton pointed out, is animistic paganism. That had the biggest spread in the world as a whole. God allowed that. Uh, and that's the, the main causal, fun, uh, causal force in the world is evil spirits. And that allows a certain sort of culture that will really only support villages. So when it gets beyond a village, you get to tribal warfare. Uh, the Black Lives Matter thing, which we may touch on at some point, but uh, that's an, uh, the most egregious example of total ignorance of history. Um, just one little thing that you can, I may have already said it, but um, uh, Tom Sowell points out that far more slaves went east than went west, and the ones that went east were castrated. Uh, there were no uh, black slaves uh, in Europe. The word slave comes from Slav because they were the vulnerable people and they were the slaves. And slaves were captured from Ireland and from England, from all over Europe. You couldn't get, it was too far to get to Africa. The, the, the slave trade across uh, the Atlantic was horrendous, awful. But do you know the death rate of the sailors was roughly the same as that of the slaves? Uh, it was awful. But it couldn't happen till we had the technology to build the boats that could do it. And of course, within Africa, uh, the white people didn't land if they could avoid it because the average life expectancy of a white man arriving in West Africa was one year from that point. Uh, no, it was one tribe capturing slaves and criminals and selling them to somebody who was stupid enough to buy them, as is the way they would see it. And still, the most slaves in the world are in Mali and in Sudan, two Muslim countries. Uh, this is Tom Sowell's way of looking at any of these things. Always, first of all, ask what policy are you proposing? What others are possible, including doing nothing? Then ask what are the consequences, which is the way you talk about abortion. What are the consequences of abortion? Uh, and there are lots uh, once you start looking. And then you say, show me the data. No data. You stay where you are until you've got some data. 
because you arrive where you are from the wisdom of the whole population. Again, as Tom Sowell points out, the, the, the anointed elite who rule our lives at the moment are a very small percentage of the whole, perhaps 1%, a little bit higher even. But the wisdom contained in the rest of society is much greater than the total wisdom in the elite. So it's not surprising we get unwise decisions. Ordinary people live within a story that has served us for 2,000 years still. They have no other in most cases, particularly in rural areas. And that's their salvation. Uh, they don't know how to deal with the, the elite, and they bend far too often. But their private conversation makes it quite clear uh, that they have no respect for them. Farmers certainly have no respect. I mean, what, what currently the green people and others are doing to and, and the whole agenda is going to wreck our capacity to produce food at the level that we have done. But that, the wisdom to understand those things is great. I love the country thing, which I got my friend, uh, whom many of you know, Aaron, to write one of my columns for me in the, the uh, CMDA journal, which I've enjoyed doing quarterly now for about 18 months. But one of them was called, was about the country uh, wisdom, don't remove a fence till you've found out why it was put up. Whereas the, the arts faculty of the university thinks they know every fence should be taken down and they'll put up a better one. Uh, that's arrogance of the first order. Uh, the Bible says it in a more picturesque way, don't remove an ancient marker. And that's, that's still true. I mean, if you live in the Nile Valley, you need markers to mark your plot because when the floods come, all wiped out but deposit silt on top. And to stop everybody fighting afterwards, they would put, they learned, that's why, that's how they learned to do some form of uh, landscape, not landscaping, measuring the land and being able to mark out after the flood. And that produced peace, that was wisdom. Ancient monuments are there for a reason, and when you find out what they were for, they may be wrong and there may be reason to, to change them, but you do it that way. And you get that out of uh, what McIntyre did. But it is true, isn't it? We do not have a moral consensus. What do you do when you don't have a moral consensus and you're in a profession which requires a moral base? We're not even talking about it. The same applies to the law. The opening of the Hippocratic Oath is, I bow by Apollo, Hygieia, Panacea, Asclepius, and all the gods and goddesses. You wouldn't take that oath. But Christians, when they were wiser, did. To, to honor the people who made it. Of course, the oath was only valid in so far as they made it to the god they knew to be the true god. But why did those polytheistic pagans invoke their gods at the beginning of their medical training. And it was, I will not teach you this trade until you've taken that oath. It was not a graduation oath. It was an entry oath. Why? Because it's a moral activity. When a, when a patient comes to see you, do they have to take your advice? No. So what are you doing? What you do in a patient interview is help the patient to decide what they ought to do. But it's their decision. Now, ought is a moral word. 
you cannot derive a statement with an ought in it from a statement that only contains physical facts. Science and physical facts cannot produce a moral system. Now, at the heart of medicine, what, what Hippocrates and his colleagues did was increase the amount of trust that patients could have because they realized they had no treatment that worked. They were useful because they understood disease. And they did sensible things like, say, don't work so hard, have a break, rest, uh, change your diet, those kinds of things, practical, straightforward things, but no treatment. And then they realized doctors were killing patients because it's very profitable and very easy, which doctors do it all the while. Uh, and when Hippocrates was around, I'm sure what the other guys who were killing, when they said, we're not going to kill patients anymore, and we're not going to propose killing yourself. And the other guys shook their heads. They were businessmen. They said, you're an idiot. It's the easiest way to make money. You can kill someone in 10 minutes or less, and uh, some money will come your way, sometimes a lot. And if we don't think that made and whatever, euthanasia, whatever title you're using in the States, I'm not sure at the moment, it will corrupt because money will change hands. And given that the level of trust between medical students is now down in single digits as percentage, that's very bad news. I mean, over the years, we would have a, a student every now and again who graduated and went away and in the next 10 years got either lose his license completely or certainly behave badly. You go back to the university transcript, no evidence whatsoever, none. Go and ask the students in his year. Oh, yeah, he was useless. All the students know within six weeks of at least 20 students, it would be better off for medicine and better off for the world at large if they weren't doing medicine. University has no idea and wouldn't do anything anyway. Because if you point out that somebody's cheating, the dean will usually say, well, give him the lowest mark that's compatible with continuing. Uh, don't throw him out. It'll cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars in litigation. You can't get rid of a teacher, Tom Sol says, in New York, who's not fit to teach. It costs them nearly a million dollars to do it. So instead, they arrange for them to go to work every day. They have a room that you can sit in. They have to be there or they don't get paid. And they play cards or read whatever they want, but they don't teach. This is what happens when we, the salt, stop being salty. Uh, uh, for, for more than 20 years, I've been trying to persuade doctors that we need, not on grounds of politics, but on grounds of justice, to divide the medical system on ethical grounds. To do what the Hippocratic physicians did again, and to say, we pledge not to kill, ever. And why shouldn't we, a significant proportion of the community, be allowed to do that. We will practice medicine in every, every other respect actually better than you will. But the 1% who rule us think they have the right to say, as Obama did, you have no conscience rights, you're a contractor. And we should have said, no, we want our own system. There are the beginnings of it, aren't there? There are some people who are beating the insurance system by the fact that Christians, second and third generation usually, can trust one another. But we need to you need to go back and you need to have a group of physicians in your area where you start talking about how we're going to divide the system up because it's going to crack. And we only have, we're the only ones with the moral base. The same applies to the law. 
Left's marvellous article that you should all have on your phone on justice from the Duke Law Review in 1979. Just put Left Justice Duke Law Review 1979, you'll get it. Here's the opening paragraph paraphrased. Left was an unbelieving Jewish uh, teacher of philosophy, uh, I think at Yale. It doesn't matter where he was, but anyway, not at Duke. And he was a much-loved teacher, a good one, uh, taught common law. But way back in the 70s, he began not to trust his students. He was worried about not their capacity to, to pass the exams, but their capacity to understand what law was and what justice is. And he didn't know what to do about it, so he gave a lecture, which is what academics do. When I don't understand a subject, I give a lecture on it, and then I, I have to learn it. And it's a terrible lecture, I'm sure, but it starts me off. Uh, this one is not a first attempt, so to speak, so you can relax a little bit. So he says, he gives this lecture at law, at, at Yale, not Yale, at, at Duke, and he says, I want to believe, and so do all of you, in a complete immanent, that's not imminent next week, it's a technical term, something is immanent to you when you can understand it. So Christ is imminent to us as Christians. The understanding of who he is is a gift that we are, we are given. So that is imminent and transcendent from God. He's an unbelieving Jew, but he wants Torah to be from God. Why? Well... You can see it in your world, which is why you fuss so much over the Supreme Court. Who judges the judges? If there is no God in their life, they ought not to be allowed to judge. Not, not because they're not legally competent, but because they're not morally competent. If you only think that this life matters and your group matters, they will behave like tribes, and they are. At the moment, you've got a balance in Canada. We, we have not had anything like what you've got for a long while. We've been having activist judges for 50 years. Arrogant and wrong. And the damage is being consistently done. So that's his opening. But then he goes on and says, but I also want to believe in no such thing which is the libertarian instinct that's put into all our children in schools is, you're right, nobody can tell you what to do, etc., etc. But rather that we are wholly free to decide by ourselves what we ought to do and what we ought to be. Very American. What we want, heaven help us, is to be simultaneously perfectly ruled and perfectly free. Cannot have both. Even Americans cannot have both. And you're choosing the wrong one, like the rest of the Western world. Then he writes 30 pages of lucid prose, weighing the pros and cons, and comes to the wrong conclusion. It's very sad, uh, beautifully expressed. He comes right to the end. He's at Yale in the 1970s. Social Darwinism is now in decline, but was at its peak then. You couldn't knock it. So he gets at it sort of indirectly. He says, it looks to me as though we are all that we have. In other words, transcendence is not real. Darwin is right. But he's honest. He's an honest Jew. He says, looking around the world, this is an extraordinarily awful position. 
Only if the law was unnatural and unspeakable by us would it be undeniable. As things stand now, everything is up for grabs. That's the first account that I've come across in uh, American literature of a serious legal academic saying we have no basis for law. Not as justice. Law is procedural now. I've got a grandson in law. I was talking to him last weekend. He said it's all procedural. He enjoys it. He likes it. But there's no, just as there's no lecture in the medical school about the philosophy of medicine, there's none in the law school about the philosophy of law. Jaw. And so law has become the pursuit of power. You see how that links in with all the things that are listed for this week? Black Lives Matter, woke it, wokeness, your non-rights to rights of conscience and so on. It's, once you make these moves, the rest is inevitable. It's logical. Uh, the best person who writes about this is Budyshevsky. How many have got a Budyshevsky book on your shelf? Oh, good. That's some impact. This one you should get, and it would make a very good book to do a reading group with the people in your church who want to. I would divide the reading group by sex uh, for much of the time because we function differently. But that's just my view. But what we can't not know, a lovely double negative which you were taught if you had proper teaching in school, you shouldn't write double negative sentences. But of course, uh, they're very common. Uh, uh, contradictory in many cases too, but you understand the real meaning. But what we can't not know is something very like the Ten Commandments. That's how the book is put up. We can't not know that it's wrong to murder. We can't not know that adultery is actually wrong. We can't not know that sacrilege is wrong, etc., etc. We all know something very like the Ten Commandments. How we know it, you can argue about more. The image of God, yes, but it took a while. But also Torah came into the world. That's what Moses is doing in that commencement address. He said, if you will follow these rules, which God doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't make any explanation of them. He doesn't make it easy for you. He doesn't say, this is why you do it. It's in your face. God says, obey these rules. No arguments. Doesn't tell you why. He just gives you a reason for doing it. Then you will flourish. Don't do it, and you won't. Uh, God, when he confronts us, commands. He doesn't beg. Uh, and he commands for our good. So that book is, it could change you quite significantly. In Budyshevsky, I met him many years ago, because uh, I'd read one of his earlier books. And, he was hired by the University of Texas at Austin to develop a theory of government that did not require transcendence. He told me he gave up because he knew that if he succeeded, one of the consequences would be that he would have no reason to love his wife and children. And that he could not accept. He said, the only trouble was he had that brought him back to church. He came from an evangelical background. But who was there in church who could talk to a man like that? I knew what was inevitably going to happen. And now, as he told me not the last time I saw him, I'm probably the only professor of government in America who has all the works of Thomas Aquinas on my shelf. But he still loves his roots, but he can't find any sustenance there. That's our problem. So. 
you've got to think very clearly about the difference between conversion, level one, I was saved. I am being saved and the nature of virtue. You want virtuous children. You want, a, you want a doctor with moral integrity. You want a lawyer with moral integrity. Good luck. Uh, but that's our fault. Um, and you do that by the way you bring up children. And that, again, is where we're losing it. The biggest... Uh, women have a, a huge problem. Uh, they know they want to have families. Uh, it's another thing they cannot not know. They can deny for, for, for years. I, I know there's now a self-help group for academic women who get to the end of a successful career and realize they've missed something important in their life that they really want and they can't have it. Uh, and they shouldn't, I told my daughters, don't go into a competitive area, do something that you love doing, uh, find a good guy, marry, have children. You're gonna have plenty of time to have a career if you want one later because the guys, are they're gonna be burning out by 40. Uh, some of them are burning out in medical school, aren't they now? Dropping out. Uh, and we're going to have a huge problem of labor. You, you, anybody who can run a family can run almost anything. Uh, and that's what we need to do. As we begin to take back medicine into the church, which is where it belongs, there's going to be plenty to do. 90% of the patients you see in an inner city clinic are there at least in part because of their behavior. That's a moral problem. And it needs a moral solution. The only place you can do it at the moment is the clinics of the Indian and poor, right? And they're the happiest clinics, aren't they? In North America. But I'm in a city and there's an indigent uh, clinic for the indigent poor. I like to go there because you hear people laughing. When did you last hear people laughing in a university? They have killed humor, totally. Especially for guys who walk on eggshells. Because most humor is at somebody's expense, isn't it? It's often at my expense, I don't mind, I still love it. But that's where we're at, so we, the model is there. They'll let us do the injured and poor because they can't possibly come near us in terms of efficiency. One of CMDA's members, who I got to know, uh, we talked about this stuff over some years, and she's a smart lady. She, I, I dream, she's a doer, like my wife, you know. I, I dream about something, and I find Sally's bought the tickets to do it. Uh, so I have to be very careful about my dreams. Um, and she, she's a terrier, she doesn't give up, whereas I probably would. But this lady and her husband, both, both physicians, they give one day a week to the care of the indigent poor. She realized, hmm, this is interesting. So she ran against Chris Christie for, what is it, governorship or whatever you call the head honcho. She only did it so that she'd get to talk to him. And she did. And she said, look, she told him where they're at. She said, if you will pick up the insurance, we could double our contribution. And we are at least 10 times more efficient than the social services system. Chris Christie, the, he's a politician, but he's one on the practical side. He, he said, mm, yeah, that's right. And as she said, you don't have to fund it. You're the government. They can give you insurance. They don't have to fund the insurance. They can take it off the tax collector if it's ever needed. It won't be needed anyway. And so 
he did it. And that's a wedge in the door. This can open it up. Uh, Christians should not be paying the same insurance policy rates that they do as everyone else because we only cost 25% of what the average North American cost. The fact that 90% of people have a moral problem and we are cheapies is not unrelated, is it? I mean, if you start drinking badly and you belong to a community, a real one, somebody will notice. Somebody who's drunk themselves because they're sensitive to it and come out the other side and they will take you on one side and say, could we have a coffee together? And then they'll tell you their story and say, you need help, don't you? So that's the way we work. Uh, unfortunately, we tend to want to help people with problems we don't know anything about. We've all got more than enough problems that we do know a lot about, and that's where we should be helping. Uh, my teasing for uh, Budyshevsky and quite a few others like him, uh, uh, it comes from, I've forgotten the name of the guy, uh, an American missionary who learned Arabic and Chinese to go to the Arabic-speaking Chinese, and God said, well done, and he died in Cairo and never had to do it. But he said, if you see ten men carrying a log, and there are nine on the thin end and one on the thick end, where do you go to help? You could put that in front of your desk. Uh, when are you thinking about help? You look at the problem where there's one on the thick end and nine on the thin end, and go to the thick end, and the church will flourish. Now, I've got a. How many minutes have I got left before coffee? You're uh, minus five. Oh dear. <laughs> Have your coffee. We can talk. And I'm glad to see somebody started to contribute to those lists. Uh, you've got another one now, loyalty and truth. I think I put that one up there. We tend to be more loyal than truthful now, don't we? And we call it politeness. It's not acceptable. Where truth dominates, you get your job because of what you know. Where loyalty dominates, you get your job because of who you know. Nepotism, incompetence. That's, what's right. That's when affirmative action goes wrong, when it's based on loyalty and not on ability. We should certainly be putting lots more effort into educating in the ghettos and doing real intelligence tests so that somebody who's really bright doesn't get sucked into the system and never used. We used to do that. Uh, you need to think about these things. I, I've left you with a lot to think about. But have a coffee. I'm looking forward to one too. Thank you, Dr. John. And thank you guys all for listening. If you guys are enjoying this, please subscribe. Share it with a friend. If you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe there as well. If you guys have questions, feel free to ask that by going to the link in the description down below or going to www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. Thank you guys, and we'll see you next week.